0: Uh, If uh, if you would join me in Hosea chapter eight uh, and we will read the whole chapter. We had you stand for the New Testament reading. Uh, I'll let you remain seated for this. Would you please give your attention uh, to the reading of God's word? Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers, though they hire allies uh, among the nations. I will soon gather them up and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces and Judah has multiplied fortified cities so i will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds the grass withers the flowers fade but the word of the lord stands forever would you pray with me i would pray our god and king that that you would be at work now in the the reading and, and preaching of your word we pray that you would Open our minds uh, to understand, our ears to hear, our hearts to embrace, and would you be at work by your word and spirit to conform us more and more into the image of Christ? For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Uh, September 18th, 1787, uh, the Constitutional Convention had just finished their work, the delegates were leaving. And uh, Ben Franklin was asked, hey, so uh, what kind of a government have you created? And his answer is now somewhat famous, a republic, if you can keep it, was his response. He understood that even then, I mean, right away, he knew, I think they all were probably keenly aware of the fact that Um, What they had just written, what they had just designed, what they had just given to our new nation was something that depended greatly on future generations embracing it, holding it, keeping it, loving it, understanding it, defending it. He knew that it could not stand on its own. He knew that it, it depended on the generations to come to actually maintain its place he recognized i think that there are dangers There are pitfalls right i mean anytime you you are handed a document like that you sort of recognize there are there are two ways we could go and get this wrong we could lean one way and give too much power to one or a few and and end up right back as a monarchy or an oligarchy we could get scared of all representation and end up right back into a sort of a true democracy where we literally have to vote on everything. And I have a story. I will save it from our visit to Switzerland. Um, and so he recognized their dangers, their pitfalls. They're, there's, if you can wander down the middle road of the Constitution that we've given you and not lean too strongly one way or the other, you'll be fine. I've given you a republic if you can keep it. Israel in uh, Hosea's day doesn't have a constitution like that. They do have, however, a covenant. A covenant relationship with God. They have a, a covenant standing before their creator and redeemer. And that covenant depends in large part especially if you go back and read Deuteronomy it depends in large part on Israel Israel's faithfulness right they have this this covenant relationship and that's part of what you find even in the 10 commandments i've brought you out of slavery i've delivered you i've given you freedom i've established this covenant relationship you now have a covenant if you can keep it and so there's this danger then Uh, that threatens Israel, that threatens God's people, which is that they by their own unfaithfulness uh, will render themselves unworthy, will render themselves um, unable to maintain this covenant relationship. And so the, the promises of the covenant are for Israel. They are for the church. They are for God's people. If we can keep them, of course, the the heart of that covenant is I will be your God and you will be my people. Just think about that sentence for a second. That's a marriage vow, right? That's a that's a claim to exclusivity. That's a claim to I will be your God and I will not be the God of anyone else. And you will be my people and you will not belong to anyone else. It is, in essence, a marriage vow. It demands dedication and and faithfulness and wholehearted devotion. And the reality is that's the church's relationship to God also. It's a a covenant relationship, a covenant commitment, a covenant. A covenant marriage between God and his people. And the benefits of that covenant are ours if we can keep them. And so Hosea 8 actually warns of the dangers. It warns of the pitfalls. It warns of the ways you might, we might, as God's people, might be in danger of losing those covenant blessings. You notice it's a warning because right off the bat in verse one, there's a trumpet, set the trumpet to your lips, blow that horn, announce the danger, announce the warning. In fact, there's a, there's a bird of prey. It's a vulture in the ESV, plenty of other places in the old Testament. It's an Eagle. It's the same Hebrew word. It doesn't matter. It's a bird of prey that, that indicates death, right? Right. Death is near. Death is imminent. Either the eagle is going to swoop in and kill or the vulture is just waiting for you to die. And it's going to come and eat the the dead body like the armadillo on Yarbrough that I had to look at yesterday. And so there's this, this picture then, this reminder that there are dangers. And so what are the dangers? Well, the first is the danger of replacing dependence on God. You know, the, the covenant promise from God to his people means that he cares for them. When God says, I'm entering into this covenant relationship with you, Israel, with you, the church. When, I'm, when I enter into this relationship, I am telling you, I love you and I care for you. And it's my job to provide for you. I want your good. I want my glory. I will lead. I will protect I will rule over, but I will rule over not with an iron fist. I won't keep you sort of buried under my thumb. I'll rule, yes, with rules, with laws, whatever, but they are good and they are for your your healing and your safety and your protection. And that really was the the function of the king in Israel was to, to serve as God's King in his place to to rule over Israel as though God were seated there physically on the throne. His function was his responsibility was the the good and the protection and the holiness of God's people. But notice the accusation in verse four. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. Not. And so the the first danger is replacing dependence on God with dependence on self. You and I are used to crowns being handed down from parent to child. Just take a look at King Charles now seated on the throne in the United Kingdom. Who was handed the, the crown by his mom when his mom passed away and The same will happen when he's gone. It'll pass down to William. And that was frequently the case, but that's not always the case. And especially in Israel's day, you can just, and and again, I keep alluding to this because men, we've been right there on Wednesday nights, right? We've been reading through first and second Kings and we've watched as this has unfolded. And so we read Hosea and are reminded of the, the usurpers that have come along. The people who have come and said, no, no, I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to get rid of the house of which ever and and replace it with the house of this guy instead. The house of Jeroboam replaced by the house of Jehu. Until someone else comes along and kills off that line and replaces it with someone else. It, it is passed down from parent to child, but not always. And in fact, In Hosea's day, the the last six kings of Israel, I've mentioned this before, all came to power by murder. Literally every single one of them, somebody got to the throne. He ruled for a couple of years. Somebody came along and said, nope, you're gone. Killed him, took the throne, and he ruled for two years. I never really understand why people don't think that that won't happen to them. Right? You ever wonder, like, you killed that guy and took his throne, and you're pretty sure you're now safe? Two years later, you're dead, and someone else has come in and taken the rule over Israel. And so there's this, this picture then of, of people sort of taking matters into their own hands. As they establish kings, whether they're establishing themselves or or whether, you know, they do the killing only to set their puppet up as the king. And that's the the pattern. That's what's going on in the life of of Israel. But God's people should always be seeking God's wisdom. Right. We should always be setting rulers over us, whether in the political arena or in the ecclesiastical one. Right. Whether we're voting in the polls or whether we're choosing leaders in the local congregation, we should always be seeking God's wisdom. We should always be seeking God's counsel. We should always be using the criteria laid out for us in his word when we choose our leaders. Perhaps you remember back in First Samuel 16 when God had determined to take the throne from uh, Saul, the first king over Israel, that then still united, of course. And he sent Samuel to Jesse's house and he said, look, I need you to go to Jesse's house and you're going to find the king there. And he walks in and Jesse's sons are there and he sees Eliab, the oldest. And Samuel's first thought is, that's our guy. Do you remember God's response? That's not our guy. You see, you look at the outward. I look at the heart. You only look at, well, that's a tall dude with muscles and he's handsome and he could kill people. He probably can fight. And that's what we want in the king. And instead he waits until David is retrieved from the fields. Young, the youngest of the family. If we're left to ourselves, we select rulers. We choose leaders with no thought given to the requirements laid out in God's word. And so this passage reminds us that we are in danger of, of replacing our dependence on God with dependence on self. And again, that happens both as we go to the polls to choose a a mayor, a governor, a president, and everybody in between, it also happens in the church. We're tempted to go, well, this person gives a lot of money, so we should should let that person be an elder. Or this person hasn't been around a while, so maybe we should give them an office, and maybe they'll come around more, and maybe they won't be absent as much. We come up with all sorts of crazy man-made ways to choose our leaders. We're in danger of replacing dependence on God with dependence on self. But then there's another sort of similar pitfall. It's not just self we might be in danger of, of setting up in God's place. We're also in danger of replacing dependence on God with dependence on outsiders. Notice verses 7 through 10. Particularly in verses 9 and 10, there's a reminder that Israel looked to Assyria for help. Where do God's people go when the threat of attack is real? Where do God's people go when they are convinced that danger lurks around every corner? Because here they wandered to Assyria. They appealed to Egypt. They appealed to all kinds of other nations, all kinds of foreigners, who, by the way, have completely different worldviews. I mean, this is uh, these are pagan nations, of course, and so they're looking to them for their protection. They're looking to these these pagan nations for their safety, for their provision. When instead they should be turning to God Himself. I mean think about what that act what this what this uh, appealing to Assyria says right you're saying in that moment god either you don't know or you don't care or you can't do anything about it i mean literally when 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 israel appeals to assyria when the church appeals to the the world around us for the justification for our existence, for our protection, for our safety, for our rule, for our guidelines, for how we operate. We are literally saying, God, you either don't know, you don't care, or you can't do. You're either not omniscient, or you're not omnipresent, or you're not omnipotent. I mean, We're literally attacking God's character in those moments. And so Israel with this special covenant relationship is in danger of losing it. Why? Because they don't think God cares. They don't think God knows. And they think it's just fine to appeal to these foreign nations. In fact, there appears to have been, Assyria was running ads in Israel. Uh, you, commercial uh, running on during all the sort of March madness in Israel, right? Basketball kicks off. It's conference championship time. It's, It's NCAA championship time. And so, um, you know, Super Bowl ad in Israel. Assyria decided they would pay the money for commercials. Ally for hire. Right? Because that's the language. They hired lovers, verse 9. They hire allies from among the nations. They literally were paying money for people to be their friends. They have... A promise from God that I will be God to you. I am your friend. And they said, we need some different ones. We need some better ones. We need some that are, I don't know, a little more appealing, a little more visible, perhaps. And so it seems that that Israel was convinced that their... Her safety, her existence depended on the intervention of other nations. Is the church in danger of that today? Is that, our, is that our pitfall that we're replacing dependence on God with dependence on self? Or that we're replacing our dependence on God with dependence on the nations around us? On the, the wisdom of the world in which we live rather than on God's revealed will. The danger of replacing dependence on God. And second, the danger of replacing devotion to God. You see, central to a covenant relationship is wholehearted devotion and commitment. Again, it's the marriage vow idea, right? That's why the the seventh commandment and adultery and the first few chapters of Hosea are such a, a great image of what Israel has done in chasing after other gods. She's guilty of spiritual adultery. She has this one covenant, one sort of covenant relationship with God, and she has forsaken that to pursue the nations, to pursue the God's Of the nations around her. So she's guilty of of violating. Of breaking that covenant. It's no longer exclusive. She's let others into that relationship. In fact she's. She hired lovers. But what are we in danger of replacing that devotion to God with? Well verse 11. In danger of replacing devotion to God with false religion. In verse 11, Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning. So it appears that they have built up more altars, right? Now we know that Israel has been worshiping Baal. We know that she has given herself to, uh, to Baal and, and has at the very least added him to their growing pantheon apparently. Or run headlong into Baal worship. And that certainly seems to be the case. In 1st in and 2nd Kings. But here they've built more altars. And they at least recognize. That we have to build altars. Where we can sacrifice for sin. And in so doing. They have become to him. Altars for sinning. Because they've added to because they've sought the the um, the bales, because they've sought the gods of the nations around them, because they've worshiped these these false gods. The altars they thought would atone for their sin actually multiplied it, actually made it worse, actually amplified it. You know, the reality is that. The church from time to time falls into these kinds of things, right? We end up looking to the world around us to add to our religion. Or for that matter, we're warned against having other gods before the one true God, the first commandment. And then we pursue our own pleasure, our own comfort a better house, a better car, a better job, more money, better kids, better parents, and everything else in between. Or even the church as a whole begins to sort of hear the accusations of the world around us and think, well, we're so thick-headed, we're so out of touch, we're so out of date, we're so out of fashion... We're so disconnected with the, the latest, greatest ideas in the world around us. We should probably embrace some of them and, and bring them into who we are. We want to stand out less. We want to blend in more, whatever the case may be. But we're in danger of replacing devotion to God with false religion. But then secondly, we're also in danger of replacing devotion to God with false worship. That seems to be what's going on in verses four through six. Um, they've made a calf. And of course, Baal worship was an idol and they're, they the craftsmen from, uh, from Israel Verse six are making, making a calf. They're making sort of these images of animals or of people. And they're adding uh, to them all. And, And they're beginning to worship that. And of course, the the false religion aspect of it all in you wander off into the woods and, and Baal worship involved all sorts of licentious behavior. But the reality is Israel from time to time makes these idols and doesn't say this is a replacement. They say this is the true Right, you, Aaron did just that right back in Exodus when they made the golden calf and when supposedly they just threw a bunch of gold and now came this golden calf. If you hear Aaron's story. But Aaron claimed then this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. He didn't say here's a new God. He didn't say let's replace the God we have with this. He said this is that This is the one who delivered you. This is the one who saved you. This is the one who brought you out of Egypt. In fact, his language, the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He actually ascribed the work of Yahweh to this golden calf. But the reality is God had already given instructions in worship, right? The first commandment, you had no other gods before him. The second commandment, Worship in the way He has told us. Not through images. Not through golden calves. The third commandment, don't misuse His name, His character, or His attributes. And so Israel has engaged in false worship. They are offering sacrifices, it seems, verse 13. They recognize that they're sinners that, that, and they have to offer sacrifices and they're doing that. But the Lord doesn't accept them. Why not? Because they're simply going through the motions. They're simply doing the things without any involvement, without any participation of the heart in worship. There's not a sense of devotion to God and to him alone. Just simply robotically slaughtering a goat splashing blood on an altar go about my business there my sin problem solved I'm free to go the reality is when we mix our ideas of what God wants in Into when we make sort of our ideas of what God would like when we sort of decide, well, I know the Bible says this. I know that God has told us this is how you're to worship. But when we start going, yeah, but it would be really cool if and we could probably reach more people if and it would be a whole lot more fun if. And we grab sort of ideas from the world around us and and bring them into our worship We're actually engaging in false worship. We're actually blending um, the ideas of the world around us into. The worship that God requires. He demands our hearts. Not just our actions. And so the reality is the church has been given a a covenant from God. God has been given this covenant standing, this covenant relationship with God, if you can keep it. But the church is perhaps in danger of replacing our dependence on God with dependence on self and on others and in danger of replacing our devotion to God with false religion or false worship. At some level, you kind of want to bring Franklin and friends back, don't you? Not because you want them to to sort of engage, but you sort of want to bring Franklin and friends back just to say, hey, so in your minds, how are we doing? Right? The question of what our country does with this constitution and which way we're leaning one way or another, at some level, I guess, remains to be seen. I guess it's sort of, you know is is out is is still up for debate i suppose it's always been up to us to to maintain and preserve the constitution and and you kind of want to ask you know ben and his buddies how you think we're doing <clears throat> but the catch is with this covenant relationship we never could keep it we never could be faithful We never could be obedient. We never could be enough to maintain this covenant relationship with God. That's why we have Jesus. Christ alone has been faithful in total dependence on God and total wholehearted devotion to God in our place. And so we're called to look to him. As our faithful substitute. Let me make three applications from this passage. First, we as believers and as a church are called to trust in God's care for us uh, and not to seek our fortunes, our chief end, our reason for existence anywhere other than him. We're called to be wholly dependent on God. Second, Uh, Devotion to God is a matter of the heart, not merely of actions. And that means that any uh, idols that cause us to sin need to be destroyed. Anything that distracts us from wholehearted devotion to him need to be removed. It also means that our worship needs to be informed by his word and not by the ideas of the latest poll or the latest social media trend or The politics of the world today. In fact, we as a church are called to worship in spirit and in truth. And here's the thing. At some level, the truth of our worship is actually up to your elders. The spirit of your worship is up to you. And so we're called to be wholly devoted to God. This passage urges wholehearted dependence And devotion to God. And then third application. Dependence and devotion begin with trusting in Christ. He's the only one that could keep the covenant in our place. He's the only one who has been faithful from beginning to end. He's the only one who has modeled and successfully fulfilled the demands for dependence and devotion. He alone lived and worshipped perfectly according to the Father's revealed will. And so we cannot and will not be dependent or devoted apart from Christ. Look to him. He's your savior. He's your redeemer. He is the fulfillment and he gives you the grace to grow, to learn, to depend and be devoted more wholeheartedly. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for um, your goodness and your mercy to us in giving us your son, in sacrificing him in our place, Uh, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness, uh, for your model of dependence to watch as you're tempted in the wilderness and to say no as Satan offers you things and to model dependence on God, to model wholehearted devotion to the father. Even as you went to the cross and in the garden, and for that we're grateful. We know that our salvation depends on you being faithful to the end. Would you now grant us the grace by your word, by your spirit, to grow in our dependence on you and our devotion to you, to the honor and glory of Christ we ask it. Amen.